Hi, everybody. Um, Arthur here with a brief producer's note. Uh, so in recording uh, our last episode, which was Tokyo Drifter, this episode, Blood Simple, uh, there were some processing issues with the computer. So the audio sounds like a skipping CD or uh, an episode of Max Headroom. Uh, so I do apologize about that sound. Uh, there wasn't anything I could really do to salvage it. And we did not have time to re-record uh, these episodes. So, uh, again, apologies if you skipped this week's episode. No, uh, you know, hard feelings. You know, um, if you want to get us the play, turn it on, turn the volume down, and we'll take the play that way. Otherwise, um, bye. I'm Tom Foden. <laughs> <laughs> Dalton threatened to come in here with the hottest of takes today on the Cohen Brothers, but seems to have cooled off slightly overnight. Well, look, I saw Pauline didn't like it, and I had we, we've got to pay lip service to that at least. We can't bit. can't go naming our show after her qu- quotes without talking about movies she didn't like. No, Pauline Cale, she's she has a well, she's a critic that's got a, a taste. And yeah. this is not her taste. No, that big time. totally makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's stuff she doesn't like. Uh, I mean, a few years before this, she doesn't like the French connection. You know? Yeah. She just, doesn't like the shining. Yeah. Yeah. There's a certain kind of... Uh, I guess genre is the first word that comes to mind. Uh, it's interesting that she, like, advocates for the good trash when there's a, definitely a certain, like, brand, like, genre-aware movie that she's not very... Is it more of a more of American... Kind of really love it. I mean, she's more of an American classical-style type thing. Yeah, I, I mean, French Connection's more of a new wave yeah, style. Her, her genre and... kind of filmmaking is screwball comedy, is really what she really digs on, I think, more than anything. Things that, like, it seems like things that are aware of their genre, too, like, she... I read her review for this, and the fact that it's kind of a self-aware noir, just like different mm-hmm. She's not, not interested in that at yeah. all. She just thinks it's like, oh, they don't take their characters seriously, and they're they're all uh, sort of the vibe. Of their, their... That was interesting. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, again, you you develop as a critic, critic of a taste. You there are kinds of movies that you like, and kinds of movies that you don't like, and and that that you'll end up find yourself being an advocate for movies that a lot of people don't care for. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a lot of movies that people just love. And you're like, nah, nah, it's okay, it's fine. That is part of it. You know, and, and, and that's, that's, I find myself. As we've learned. I, I find myself in that place too. Yeah. You know, I so. Mean, Dalton Loud's Banshees of Inisher, and you and I are like, it's good. It's, it's fine. Yeah. yeah, it's my like eight, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I like it a lot. I mean, it may be in my top 25. I don't it, remember. It might but, make 25 out of the 50 some odd I've seen. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot I like better, but which, I mean that's the point, though, right? Well, I mean it's a good frame of reference. I mean we're this is into January now, so we'll be getting to record our own top fives uh, shortly. So yeah, uh, thinking of our taste in line with other people's tastes is that's mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, hello everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We gather around a table, we discuss some films you'll never discuss in film space course, unless you're tuning in in January, in which we do our anti-trash marathons. We are currently in the midst of an anti-trash crime cinema marathon, and the crime cinema question today is Joel and Ethan Cohen's Blood Simple, and I'm still Dustin. 
I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And we're going to be talking about this movie, and we are going to do a little bit of review, but this is a review show. Oh, no, it is an analysis show. And that does mean, unlike reviews that you might read from Pauline Kale and her ilk, there will eventually be spoilers. But the first part of the show will avoid that. The way that it's going to end up looking is this. We will do a synopsis, which will be a synopsis. If you don't know what a synopsis is, go to IMDb and read some. Uh, it just says this is kind of the blog line of the movie. Then we're going to do our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which is a shorter part of the show in which we just talk about whether or not the movie hits, as the kids say. And then we move on to a little game called Expanding the Syllabus, which might involve gentle spoilers of this film, but more likely spoilers of films in its orbit, which might in a way be a sort of tangential way to spoil the film. Finally, we move up, move up to uh, getting down to the business, our analysis section. There'll be music to let you know that we've gotten down to business, and that's when all spoilers are off. And then you'll find out what happens to Emmett Walsh, Walsh and uh, others. Uh, so, that's, so that's the nature of the show. I'm so glad to be here with my co-hosts talking about this movie. Uh, now, now, I am a virgin watcher. Are, Arthur, are you a virgin watcher? Well, I had seen it before. I had not. No. Well, first I guess time for me as well. Our rules are then the virgin goes first, and so therefore I shall... Go first in my. Well, wait, wait, wait. We have synopsis first, though. I just. New Year, just New Year, and still dropping the ball. I just wanted to talk about this movie. I'm so excited. <laughs> Go ahead, Arthur. Give us a synopsis, and then I'll talk about it. After Marty discovers that his wife is being unfaithful, he hires someone to kill them both. But in love and greed, things aren't always that simple. Very good, very good. Uh, so Marty is Dan Hedaya. Uh-huh. Uh, Vistler is the detective character. Emmett Walsh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Francis McDormand's character's name is... Abby. Abby and our... Uh, Stu- Ray. 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 John okay. Getz. Okay, Ray. Okay. Ray, Ray Bob. Ray, Ray Bob. Is it really Ray Bob? That's what I, Maurice calls him later. That's yeah, right. Call him Ray. Ray Bob, Which yeah. posits that his real name is uh, Raymond... Robert. Raymond Robert. Raymond Robert does that. That is like a, horr- a horrifying implication. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's go into our uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. And I say thumbs up. Yeah. This movie's fun. Uh, it's it's, <laughs> it's Coen Brothers pick. I'm done now. Yeah. Uh, no, it's good. It's a good noir. It's, it's exactly what noir is at its best, which is counterplots, crosses, double crosses. It's got all of that stuff. It does have a little bit of your detective character with uh, Visser, but it's not really about him. It's that other kind of noir where it is about infidelity and schemes and embezzlement and... Much more double indemnity than uh, Maltese Falcon. You're absolutely right. And more will be said about about that later when I get syllabus. Check out. Uh, But, yeah, yes, exactly that kind of noir. It's also super stylish. I like the use of these long tracking shots. I like the use of the color. Uh, we were, Arthur and I were titling some of the making of stuff just a few moments ago. And uh, the way in which the, the pink light is able to catch smoke rings and those kinds of things really make the movie work. Also, I think I think there are the film that uh, definitely are uh, akin to uh, one of your Evil Dead films. So there's a little Sam Raimi DNA in Well, they here. were hanging out a lot in this period. They yeah. were hanging out. And of course, Bruce Campbell is in the sizzle trailer that they used to uh, get the movie made in the first place. He's the guy wielding the shovely um, there, if you see that little yeah. bit of a trailer there. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think all of that really works. I remember that I don't remember the score, which is maybe bad? Maybe bad? I really don't know. I do know that I remember the four toss. 
and I like the use of the four tops, the multiple uses of the four tops. I think I read somewhere that there was another song that ended up being used at one point for one release of the film. Yeah, they and, couldn't get right, so it, initial it, they I had think, them in distribution. Them. Yeah. yeah, but the 2000 restoration, they were able to put it in the original music. Which is good. I don't know what else they use, but um, the four tops is what you needed yeah. uh, for that. That's, that's the perfect Maurice theme song, and also just kind of a good, I don't know... Uh, counterpoint point comment moment for, for the film so uh yeah performances are great uh francis mcdermott um is a, what a first performance a force to be reckoned with yeah uh, in the film i like, like dan hydea a lot i don't see him much in a lot of stuff uh, but uh he's a character actor he he plays a lot of attorneys and that kind of character i, I richard really, nixon's richard's nixon and uh alicia silverstone's dads which genetically that doesn't make any sense but yeah, I digress. Suspend your disbelief. Suspend my yeah. The Clueless is an incredible film, and it, you know it can do no wrong. No wrong as far as I know. Yeah. We love you, Amy Heckerling. Uh, but yeah, the movie really works, and it is a noir that inverts the tropes. What? He's just rewriting history over here. When we recorded on Clueless, he was not very nice to it. <laughs> I, I, I I was not on that I, show. I can't tell. I had to hear about it. My mind, my mind changed. Yeah, that as, happens a lot. I think he'll. This is Val movie, and then several years later, I love that movie. I like it a lot. I'm like, I remember, I remember on the show, didn't care for it. But. I, I, I recently uh, posted on a social media platform that um, I'm at hot takes. Are you back on Zanga? I am back on Zanga. Yes, no, I'm not. Uh, but I, I realized to myself that all my hot takes are almost always wrong. I, ne- never, never am I what I first think. Am I correct? Thoughts and opinions. <laughs> thoughts and opinions, <laughs> not takes. That's what we're here thoughts for. And prayer. Yeah. Th- thoughts, thoughts and prayer. <laughs> thoughts and prayers to Ray as we <laughs> look at Blood, Blood Simple. But yeah, I like it a lot. But uh, interestingly enough, the score is something that's really unmemorable, as I was t- talking about just the sort of aspects of the film. And so... I don't know if that's a flaw or not, but it also kind of shows maybe the shoestring budget uh, of his production. So there you go. Those are my thoughts on Blood Simple. I go to you next. Arthur, what do you think of Blood Simple? Uh-huh. Suck it, Dalton. Yeah, he's mixing it up. I'll go last. Yeah, okay. that's fine. Uh, I, I like this movie a lot. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it is classic Cohen. Right? Se- second visit for you? or yeah. Okay. Second time I watched this one. I watched it, I mean, within the last two years. I can't remember exactly when I watched it. When I never really gotten around to. Uh, I'll be growing up. You know, the Coens were kind of... At the level of like a Tim Burton, you know, kind of getting into film, they're kind of one of the first, like, you know, directing teams that that kind of a tour theory kind of takes over, and especially in the late nineties, early aughts, I was supposed to say, especially in our oh, group. brother, yeah. Big Lebowski, um, mm-hmm. you know, coming through all of those, uh, hits, you know, and then No Country comes out in oh six oh seven oh seven yeah. right, and, and so uh, it's it kind of one of those teams that, and they make good movies, and so. Uh, I, I missed some of the earlier stuff. I had seen Raising Arizona, uh, but I'd missed Barton Fink. I'd missed this. I'd missed Miller's Crossing. Uh, and so uh, I, I caught up with it a couple of years ago, within the last couple of years. And I, I, I really mean, I, it's always fun to see a first, see a first from a, a well-known director or directing, in this case, directors. But um, sometimes, you know, I, I think of Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket is kind of a, a, another case where... Anderson's fingerprints are there, but it's not fully formed Wes. Mm-hmm. But there's something almost very fully, fully formed about Wes here. Dude, it's a real. little, I mean, it is cheap. Like, I mean, it's low budget, but their vision, their sensibilities, all of that seems to be on display immediately. And they just kind of come out swinging. And I think that's really cool. And you couple that with, you know, talk about score, you talk about Carter Burwell's first film. 
here. You talk about Barry Sonnenfeld's first feature narrative film. He did a documentary and a music video before this. And his his work as director of photography on this is it's it's excellent. It's nuts, yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. He's making some moves. Uh, Francis McDormand, as we already mentioned. I mean, though, uh, M.M. at Walsh, who they'll work again with uh, in Raising Arizona, uh, as they've just put together a band here that, I mean, is really impactful in modern film history. I mean, without those moves, we may not get Sonnenfeld's career. We may not get Burwell's career, you know, and Burwell mentions, uh, and there's a interview with him on the Criterion set where he talks about, you know, he did this and then he went and did some some Hollywood stuff there. And he said that, you know, if, if he had, he had started and probably wouldn't have never kept going. Oh, it, it's, it was working with the Coens that were knowing the possibilities of what you could do. Mm. And so that, that's, you know, those things are really cool. And it's just such a good narrative. Uh, it all wraps up really well. Um, everything's really tight. It's a good script. Um, it's a, it's just a solid movie. And I don't think it's their best movie, but it's a good movie and it's a great first movie. And, um, all those sensibilities I think are there, you know, that kind of, you know, stupid circumstances, you know, people do dumb things. Uh, life happens without reason. Sometimes things just happen and there's no mm-hmm. cause or correlation with it. I mean, with it. I mean, they, things just, just go off the rails. And so uh, I think over their career, they've really captured that idea very well. Uh, and so, so, yeah, I like it. You know, it feels, you know, it feels kind of kind of burn after reading uh, in many ways. And, and I like that movie a lot, too. And, and so, yeah, I dig this. I, I dig the Coens. I dig uh, what they're doing here. Um, and I think, you know, it's a pretty seminal kind of independent and that kind of Sundance period type of film. And so uh, independent cinema, I think it's very important as well. And I dig it quite a bit. All right. Thank you very much for that. Arthur Gordon, Dalton Stewart. What do you think of blood simple? Ooh, this is a movie where everybody's sweaty. Love a, love a sweaty picture. Yeah. I love that. I love all the fans, other classic noir stuff. You know, we've, we've mentioned some of the, the hallmarks of the genre that this film traffics in, and again, infidelity and, and shadows being two big, big ones, but the ceiling fans, I just, that's mm-hmm. classic noir bullshit. And I yeah. love it. I just, just love a laconic ceiling fan. Yeah. Just, I love the, the, the ceiling fan in the bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ray. Yeah. Or uh, Marty. Yeah. I knew, yeah, I knew exactly the shot you were talking about. Um, yeah, this is a fun movie. Uh, it, it's got a lot to like, as Arthur said, it does really feel fully formed Coens in, in a pretty, way. I mean, there's just so much of their their sense of humor is already here, and also their sense of character motivations being sort of uh, simple, uh, but also you know full of malice. I mean, this 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 way in which characters will kind of turn on a dime or um, yield themselves is, is is really interesting. And again, mm-hmm. just kind of feels so, so true of like what comes in filmography. Mm-hmm. I'm with you, Arthur. Like they've always been sort of on a, a peak, you know, coming up as a, a film lover. They were already sort of solidified as, mm-hmm. as names. You know, as I'm coming up in film, it's right around the time that No Country's coming yeah. out. And this is their big kind of serious prestige Oscar picture. And, uh, you know, film, film lovers in the know been on board since Blood Simple and Raising Arizona and so sort of the early pictures. So they, they've always kind of loomed large me as, you know, um, these sort of baby boomer Gen X Cusper filmmakers uh, just being a couple of generations older than me and, and being large figures in film. And as I'm getting into it, it's fun to visit this picture with that with that context. It's interesting to to look at Kim's review uh, from maybe four. She 
reviews this film alongside Witness, which is very, very funny. Mm. from films about rural life in very different mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Um, but uh, she reviews this film very, very unfavorably. But the things that she doesn't connect with are things that are so kind of prototypically Cohen. Mm. It, it really is interesting to have that different insight on the career to like look at somebody seeing these filmmakers come out of the gate and just not be impressed with, with what they're doing versus looking back on a career that has been really lauded critically, commercially. Like, like they, they've connected with audiences uh, for years now. And, and to see things that are I can consider kind of hallmarks of their craft be sticking points for calling Kales. It's just fun. It's just fun to like look at that, that take on it and have somebody be like, this isn't working for me. And I think when we get a little bit deeper into the show, maybe we can talk about what didn't work for her and, and how we feel about that. But I, yeah. I think if, if you can get on board with sort of the, the kind of tropey noir elements, there's a lot to be had here. It's, it's a, it's a taut thriller. It's a good time. It keeps you on the edge of your seat as far as who's, who's going to do what next, uh, whose motivations are, are going to win out. And uh, again, as we mentioned, Barry Sondold's uh, cinematography on this is just nuts. I mean, all these these blues and purples and the shadow lines getting cast across characters' faces—it's just—it looks incredible. Uh, some some very fun camera moves as well too. Mm-hmm. Dustin already mentioned sort of the Raimi element to some of these camera move moves, and yeah, it's very hyperactive at times when when the the moment calls for it but it's also you know there's there's kind of more restrained camera moves really mm-hmm. interesting sort of slow push-ins and, and sort of hands that are kind of more, more calculated and again this does feel as you said as you said are really formed you see how these filmmakers kind of ended up becoming the the institution they were for so many years I mean, now we're we're sort of at where it's unclear if these two are going to keep working together um you know, it's it's unclear if the sort of projects that the two of them gravitate to uh, are any or even things that they can get money for anymore. I mean, uh, that tragedy is it Joel or Ethan that did tragedy Macbeth? I always forget. Oh, uh, I don't know. Joel, I think. Okay, that's what I thought because Joel's the one that's months married to France. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but that's you know that's sort of a a big prestige picture because of the actors. But you know, it is sort of a smaller budget as far as you know, kind of restrained sets and. You know, it's it's interesting what they're working on right now, and it definitely sort of, as far as resources wise, a little closer to where they started in their in their career with Blood Simple. So it's I don't know, especially like Buster Scruggs, which is just such a a big kind of rompy all over the old West anthology film. You know that they they get that Netflix blank check, and next isn't really passing those out like they were five years ago. So it's. It's unclear like what comes next for the filmmakers. So to look back on Blood Simple is is really a treat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know what's going to happen with with that career, those careers, especially if they're going to come back together or not. I think it's not like the the Wachowskis where there was sort of like a a, a verbal like end to the partnership, like an, yeah. an announcement was made. Yeah, it's not quite like that. Yeah, but I mean they've done really just about anything they do as a pair. I mean you know. Critical acclaim, Oscars won. You know they've kind of reached the top pinnacle. Of Misunderstood that. masterpieces. You yeah. know people love Sucker Proxy, which is yeah. one that like I like that nobody, movie a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, it's the one that uh, Raimi writes with them uh, mm-hmm. or writes for them. I think, um, and I know people like that one a lot, but it, it doesn't connect when it comes out. And like mm-hmm. like you said, Arthur, like they've done it all. They've they've had this. They've had the, the you know the misunderstood masterpieces, the cult followings mm-hmm. with you know Lebowski. They've, they've really have done it all, like you said. And, and at, there is something that is very them 
there is when you see a Cohen's character, you can kind of identify it right away. You can mm-hmm. sort of pick up on the dialogue, the language, the motivations. Um, it, it's it's all right there as you there as you say. You kind of are fully formed in this first film as far as like what their, their interests are. So I'm, I'm I'm excited to talk about this movie with you guys and, and see and see if we can get into the Cohen's a little bit today and kind of you know unpack their deal let's see what happens all right we'll move on to the next part of our show which is what we call expanding the syllabus dalton can you explain what that's all about i sure can dustin this is the part of the show where we deliver on our promise we talk about the films you wouldn't discuss in a film studies course and we do it in an academic film studies type way except it's anti-trash month as dustin has already told you so this film that you probably would talk about in a film studies course blood simple is going to come up in noir classes and you know auteur classes Indie uh, cinema. Indie cinema, for sure, yeah. So this is one that'll come up, and we're going to talk about other ways it could be used. All righty. Well, do you have a syllabus prepared, my friend? Oh, I've got a real baby shit one for you today. Look, it's the uh, New Year listener. What do you want from me? What? Nothing. Oh, I see what you're doing there. That's that's very, very funny. <laughs> no, I, I just think it'd be fun to do them uh, a unit on them, them, and it's about mm, yeah. uh, filmmaking duos or sibling filmmakers. Mm-hmm. The Wachowskis, the Dardens, the Ways, the Quays, rather. Uh, there's a lot. It's it's not a short McDonough's. list. The McDonough's. Well, they don't work together that often, but they, they're both working in the in the field, which is mm-hmm. interesting. And I think that's that's a fun place to look at too, like siblings that don't work together but are both in the industry. So again, a unit on the Cohens and sort of a large class on on these duos. It, it is interesting how you know the the shared shared child really can make for a fruitful creative partnership. I, uh, there's just something there. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I've always been fascinated Understand, by it. Understanding you know, one another, sort of having a shorthand, right? Yeah. yeah. You, it makes yeah. you wonder if that's what it is or if it is just, you know, having enough time to have been talking about, well, what if we did this for, you know, 20 years before you even get, get the camera in front of you? Uh, I just think they're fun. I, 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 I'm I'm very in their career. Again, it's again, it's been for a strong 40 years at this point. Uh, I mean, creeping up on 50 uh, before it. So uh, sorry, to, sorry, Dustin. Yeah, it's fine. I hate to break to you, but uh, you were four years old when this movie came out. <laughs> Hard to believe. I don't know. They're just uh, they've done so much. Higher than the Cohen's partnership. Uh, uh, well, no, because I mean they were born in the fifties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Their partnership predates the existence of Blood Simple. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. No, okay, but that's, you're older than their film career. That's what we're talking about. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we would talk about that film career. I think we'd hit we'd hit this. We'd hit No Country. Hit Lebowski. I think that those are kind of like the big three for me. Uh, well, no, I want to get Fargo in there too. Um, that's sort of the first commercial and critical success one. That's the one that like really blows up for him. Uh, get get a little Oscar recognition going early in the career. Um, I don't know. I I, I think uh, the push and pull between thriller and comedy that exists in a lot of their work is so fascinating to me. And it's again it's often within the same picture. Uh, they're doing both, but the the, the volumes are always kind of calibrated a little bit differently. And I think that's a fun thing to explore with with those two. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, what do you have there, Arthur? Uh, I think I'd take a look at this in um, a probably a, probably a screenwriter course, and we talk about yeah. point of view. Um, okay, which is kind of a big part. And there's a, a special feature on uh, the Criterion uh, where David Boardwell breaks down the use of point of view in uh, this film and talks about it. And they even you know they show uh, screenshots of uh, a script and the screenplay. And even Francis McDormand in an interview uh, mentions like 
there are just constant references to the point of view, like switching between mm-hmm. characters in that. And like she mentioned, mentions like young actress, she what that meant because it just says POV. Um, and so that's a big part of it in the way in which um, we're not really tied to any one character. It's, it's always in the moment we're connected to uh, Visitor or Marty or, or uh, and it's constantly switching. Uh, and then they mentioned how it's kind of a, uh, a novel approach and almost puts us in, you know, kind of that God, God position because we're omniscient to everything, to everything that's in seeing all that, that play out. Um, it's limited all the time. So even when, when you're in Viscera, you don't, you don't know what anybody's doing. Yeah. And so you're not but in. But you're some, aware of information that he doesn't that have. That he doesn't have, right. Yeah, yeah. But even when you're with Abby, yeah. you know, you don't know anything that yeah. Abby doesn't know. Um, I think about Stephen King a lot when mm-hmm. I think about that kind of point of view where yep. he does this sort of limited third person, yeah. which is his. Yep. His limited person yep. from chapter to chapter, yep. section to section. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So, uh, but from there, we would just kind of talk about point of view and how that's used and portrayed in films, uh, some a little more literal than other. But we'd look at first Dark Passage, which is a 1947 film uh, with Bogey and Bacall, uh, where Bogart is a prisoner on the run uh, who has to have face surgery so uh, he can be unrecognizable by the cops. Um, and the first portion of that they film is shot. It up he looks like Humphrey Bogart yeah, when they're no, no. done. Oh, well, he can't be too, too pretty. He can't be too pretty. He just got to look like the world's most famous celebrity. Um, <laughs> but in that, uh, the first portion of the film is shot from first person perspective of that character. Ah. So we're kind of in that, drawn into those events, uh, which makes everything very immediate, very immersive in our experience of what is taking place. Uh, and only having the knowledge that he, that character has. Because they don't have a different actor who's the yeah. pre-surgery yeah. Bogart. it's just yeah. Bogart's voice over uh, the cam- camera. Uh, then we would talk about Rope, uh, where uh, we get Hitchcock using that limited uh, camera, doing the real-time thing, uh, which again constricts us, but we're allowed to kind of have this omniscient look into the room that's taking place, and we have information that the party guests don't have, which adds to the suspense of what's going to take place as these events unfold. Uh, we'd look at Henry Portrait, a serial killer, mm. as well. Uh, one of the, the things um, mentioned, I can't remember which one of the interviews I saw in, uh, they talk about how we don't have a good guy here. We mm. have a bunch of people, um, and we have to choose one that we can kind of maybe identify and root for, and that may, may be Abby, it may be Ray, right? But in doing so, doing so connect with... M.M. Walsh, who is not a good person, or, you know, Marty, who is not a good person, and we have to, to kind of feel for them. Uh, Henry does a very good job getting job into the terror and moment, not by showing you things, but by putting you there alongside Henry and, and making him that main character who you have to connect with and be attached to as these events unfold. And we see some of this in Meta as, you know, he records events that happen on camera and we look through that lens uh, to see what's taking place. And I think that's, that's an interesting which the point of view uh, is played with. Uh, we look at Silence of the Lambs, uh, not only for uh, that first person, uh, you know, camera work of looking right in the eyes, uh, but even the uh, way and point of view is played with and subverted to create suspension tension, and especially mm. at the finale of that, yeah. which is, I, mm-hmm. I think always yeah. works. I, you know, yeah. I've seen it so many times, and it still just works. Uh, when the FBI shows up to the house, and you're like, okay, and then you realize, oh no, right? And it's such a good bit 
uh, which what is withheld from the audience, what is with him, uh, but also knowing what we know, which is such a good bit. And, and so we look at that. And then I think we look take a look at 1917 again, uh, which puts us kind of right over the shoulder of these two young soldiers uh, running across uh, Europe trying to complete a mission. Uh, and, and again, putting us in there, restricting information because we only see what our characters see. We only know what our characters know, uh, which adds to the tension and the thrills of the moment as they are running through minefields or battlefields or getting shot at or um, getting trapped. And so I think there's just something really powerful about that uh, restricted point of view in that where, you know, we don't have that sort of godlike mm-hmm. knowledge and, and intelligence of the situation, uh, which makes that a much more... Uh, uh, kind of thriller uh, as we try to figure out how this is going to play out. And so um, that's what we do, though. We just kind of, just kind of look at the ways in which we can play with point of view, how, you, how that audience, how that you know changes uh, the effect of the story, the effect of the scene, and, and, and the most... You may you could even you know do some uh, playing around, some writing exercises where we you know rewrite a first-person scene to be third-person or vice nice. versa and see how that changes and alters the effect of the, the scene. I gotta, I gotta check out 1917, the person shooter movie. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Right? And, and then I, I still fault it for that because it very much feels like a video game. Yeah, that's uh, what I remember you saying scene, when it came out. Yeah. Uh, running gun, cutscene, running gun, yeah. found some power ups, restore health, <laughs> running gun, running yeah. gun. Yeah, I, I really, mean, it I really do, does feel like it. Yeah, this is truly, that's why I want to watch it. I want to like see Battlefield if I can. 1924, yeah, the exactly. movie or whatever. I want to see how much I can catch Sam Mendes doing it. <laughs> and I want to see how many interviews I can find of him yeah. being like, yeah, I watched my play video game. It looks cool. Is, <laughs> is, is, is the power up like, does he take AC or something uh, like that? No, they drink some milk. They drink some milk. Right. They find some milk in a cave, of course. Yeah. So, you know. Little hidden dairy. Loot box. They found a loot box. Yeah. <laughs> mm, interesting. Have you uh, not seen it? I've not seen no, it. No, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it, it I think it's like still it. technically, you know, it's very technically impressive in that sure. way it's put together, but, but it is almost narratively a little hard to buy into. Yeah, it sounds like a movie I ought to see, but yeah. I'm not in a rush. I think it's worth checking out. I thought yeah. it looked cool, yeah. yeah. I, just, I wasn't in a rush and missed it in theaters. Sam's yeah. good and it's visually impressive. So. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. Uh, so with my syllabus, what I do with this movie is, is I would have it inserted within an entire course. Uh, I want to teach a mystery fiction course. Um, that's what I want to do, just okay. the entire thing. So we'll do Conan Doyle to start, start out with, and the detectives, early detectives. Uh, we'll talk about Poe a little bit. We'll talk about Doyle, especially Holmes. And uh, thinking about those uh, literary sort of adaptations of these particular works as well. And so when I get into the hard-boiled section after I do Agatha Christie, which would be what would follow Doyle, uh, I would move into hard-boiled, and I would talk about the, the film noir detective, especially the sort of uh, hard-boiled detective, but also the other hard-boiled. And I sort of made reference to this a minute ago. And that's the James M. Kang kind of hard-boiled story. And I think with this film, uh, I, I would pair much more uh, uh, like Mildred Pierce mm. than I would necessarily The Postman Always Rings Twice, although there's a lot of, lot of Postman Always Rings Twice as mm-hmm. well uh, to this movie. This movie, this sort of taking out the uh, the husband kind yeah. of thing that's going on there with James Garfield and Lana Turner in that, that particular film and also uh, the uh, novel from Kane. But also... Just and, and of course, uh, Bill Wilder's Double Indemnity, which is also by Kane, is something that's uh, uh, of a of a piece uh, with this film. And so, thinking about these these other stories, and I think the the Coens are a real sort of James M. Kane kind of analog 
in the world of noir or the world of the hard boiled mm. uh, because they have Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men, which is also the same kind of uh, investigative intrigue that is part of the mystery of those stories. And it is a man on the run sort of crime thriller, but it's, 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 a, it's runs in a very different uh, register than say a Dashiell Hammett story. Um, Blood Simple is uh, drawn from a line from Dashiell Hammett Harvest. I was about I, to ask you about this. I, knew, I, 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 I read, read it this, uh, yeah. for, for, for research. Uh, okay. Of course he did. It has nothing to do with this really. Um, um, Red Harvest is much more Yojimbo, sure. uh, man with no name kind of stuff. And uh, well, Continental Op, that character, and I've read a couple Continental Op short stories before. Is he's, he's a Humphrey Bogart esque kind of uh, uh, hard boiled detective. Sure. And so uh, I think the line itself is just sort of a, a, a springboard for inspiration. But I think this film owes lots more to Kane than it does to Hammett. Um, and much more so than it would to say Raymond Chandler or something like that. And so I would, that's the way I would end up approaching this film and the Coens as the sort of James M. Cain analog. And of course the, uh, the, the, the Holy Trinity of the world, the hard boiled is James M. Cain, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammond, uh, are what we look at. And so I'm not exactly sure what all we would read in this second, because I would want to just live here and here and just, just authors over the course of a whole semester, but I'm not quite sure I could pull it off for 16 weeks. Uh, if that, so I'd want to expand it on it on the back end with, Doyle and Christie, hard boiled here, and then I'd probably move into TV detectives a bit, uh, talking about your Columbos and your David Lynch's with Twin Peaks, and also your cozy, cozy mysteries, and spend some time with Angela Lansbury and Murray and Murder Sheep, um, which is wonderful stuff. Cozy I, mysteries. I, I love the cozies. Yeah, yeah. Knives yeah. Out kind of fits in there too a little bit, mm-hmm. but because of the sweaters. The, no, Knives Out is not a cozy. Um, yeah, I so, think of this as cozy. Too many sweaters. Cozies are <laughs> Nancy Drew is a cozy. Sure. Okay. Uh, cozies are your female detectives almost always. Veronica Mars is a uh, good example of cozy. Only women are allowed to be cozy. Interesting things coming from Dustin today. <laughs> no, the, 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 the cozy is a genre that exists and it is, a, is about relationships and network of friendships of the detective as they solve a series of mysteries. Uh. And so, so cozies are... Uh, sort of built around anthology mystery that you solve individual cases but the real sort of draw in is her relationships to various characters and in the world of the detective and ministry, mystery men are not allowed to have relationships um, and that's why Humphrey Bogart you know doesn't yeah, care they have about to be sad loners. Yeah, sad yeah. loners. And so uh, the cozy is. Uh, I would be interesting to see. Uh, and I'm sure if I did a little, did a little research, I come up with some male cozies. I'm sure they that exist. are out there. Well, I mean, uh, Holmes has got his his whole network of, of folks, which is less relationship driven, more transactionally driven, correct. But still, it's like there's a way you could yeah, get there. The DNA exists but somewhere. You could have a family man kind of person. I mean, yeah. I will. Um, what's his name? And Mr. Mercedes. Um, uh, what is his name? Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, exactly. The uh, cop, uh, the, the retired the, cop, the retired yeah. cop guy, uh, maybe kind of lends himself. Because he has his neighbor friend. He's got his assistant who comes in later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And she's really, I mean, becomes the sort of crux yeah. of, of energy in a lot of those movies. But, King does three novels. novels, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a whole. And then kind of a spinoff with uh, the Outsider. Yeah. The uh, Outsider. Yeah, that's right. That's a carryover character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I forgot. I always forget because I've only seen the Outsider TV TV show. Yeah. Yeah. There's a way, and I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, there's one works a little like a cozy. Okay, and it sort of plays around with supernatural stuff by by the end of Mr. the Mr. Mercedes series series novel. Yeah, this is where it sort of gets um, fantasy sci fi yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. kind of stuff on there. So uh, yeah, but that's how I end up approaching. I think this and and I really try to relate this film to the the Kane style of mystery fiction, uh, which is a different kind of thriller. Sutter Kane. 
um, not Sutter Kane. Do you cozy? Do you, Sutter Kane is not cozy. Uh, okay, I think it's time to stop this nonsense and get down to business. It's That's right, your listener, and that business is, as always, Analysis. Texas. Here, you're on your own. Are the Coens from Texas? No, no. they're from Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, it's Minnesota is schooled in New York, I think, and that's yeah. where they connect with everybody. They've made a couple right? stories that come out of Texas in the South, and, uh, yeah. you know, that Louisiana connection with Oh Brother. And, I'm sure there's that kind of ex- like appeal to the Northerners, right? right. Yeah. I think hot, they're interested. It's sweaty. Right? It's, it's where Southern, Westerns happen. Yeah. yeah. I, I definitely think it is more of that. Texas is place of myth. It's an interesting place for them. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's like because yeah. do this and then then raising Arizona is well, southwest. southwest. Right. Yeah, and then I'm trying to think if there's any other ones besides. Where's Miller's country. Crossing? I don't I haven't seen that. Oh, I think it's like the Ozarks. I haven't seen Miller's Crossing. I know it's like Barton a Fink is L.A. Barton right? Fink's an L.A. story because sure, Oklahoma, it's, Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah, Barton Fink is very much a Hollywood story. Lewis Davis is Greenwich Village. So very, yeah, exactly. You know, it's obviously close to home. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's that is sort of where they uh, are strongest. Honestly, is is when they're doing the close to home thing. And if Fargo's, you know, a couple states is over, it's still sort of similar characters, similar accents, similar ways of talking. Yeah, um, I think No Country's great, but yeah, I mean, I love No Country. That's I, you know, that's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it's that one feels like they are getting a lot of help from McCarthy as far well, as yeah, yeah. Trail of Texas goes, and, the, and then they are they are. Cleave close to that novel, as know. I understand it. Yeah, yeah I haven't are. read it, but I, I don't know. It's it is Texas operates in this story as a place of. I mean, call, Pauline Kale calls it a cartoon version of Texas. I think is how she phrases it. Yeah, the movie's set in a familiar cartoon. Texas is how she phrases it. I don't think that that's an unfair criticism. I think this is very, very much that Texas as Texas is as it is in the movie. Is in the movie. I mean, they're shooting. I think in Austin. But it does feel very much like a small, small ten Texas, right? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Right. Raised in a trailer park, yeah, rural and... West Texas. Yeah. yeah, is what it feels like to yeah, me. Yeah. Much more than East Texas. Yep. So, uh, speaking of criticism, I was thinking about a thing and something that you talked about as a, as a uh, uh, preoccupation kind of theme within the world of the Coens, which is the sort of the absurd, the the unfortunate or sometimes fortunate accident, mm-hmm. and how that sort of informs a lot of their storytelling te- techniques, which, which I think is absolutely true in what they do. And I was thinking about a moment in the film where Ray has just buried Marty's body mm-hmm. um, alive and uh, that the car doesn't start like mm-hmm. at first. The, yeah. The score drops out too. this is one of my favorite moments in the movie, actually, is yeah. we've got the God's eye shot of the car. Yeah. The score is going and then the engine sputters and the score drops out until the engine turns over and it comes back. This right. is really fun. And, and there's, a, there's a version of this movie where Ray has to leave his car there and figure something else out. Sure. You know? Which is, I think, would have been interesting and fun. I think it's fine that the car goes ahead and starts. But I was thinking about how often cars don't start in, uh, especially these 70s and 80s films. You need them to. When you need them to. Yeah, yeah, there's this moment where you need the car to work. And, you know, it's a horror movie. It's a thriller movie. It's a bank heist. It doesn't really matter. And they'll they'll use that, you know, you know just sort of breakdown of technology to uh, add one more obstacle for the characters to overcome. And yeah. it's, it's really interesting. It's, and, it's, and, you know, makes new things to overcome and things that are fun. And I was thinking about the ways in which critics now and viewers now are hypercritical of the technology of the cell phone not working. 
and how, for whatever reason, we have decided to no longer give a pass to the text of the technology and that just being an obstacle. And that if the cell phone doesn't work, you know, the mo- obviously if you say the cell phone works, the movie's over. But many times the car works. The kids drive away and the chainsaw killer doesn't them, right? I mean... Well, we still get that. I mean, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies movie comes out this year mm-hmm. that has both of those issues, right? Yeah. The car doesn't start and the phones aren't working because yep. there's a storm. Right. Yeah. right. I mean, I mean, this, 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 you know, the cell phone has become the screenwriter's greatest, greatest weakness. You can get out of just about any situation with the phone call. You have to get so around So you either the have phone. to be isolated, uh, a storm has come in, or the phone has to break. Yeah. Like, Technology has to be taken away from you for some I reason. Mean, I know. think if it becomes a super obvious i don't know i mean i don't think there's a way i mean you've got to get rid of the phone somehow right mm-hmm. if you're right. in a horror if you're in a suspense film or emergency type of a film disaster type of thing you get rid of that somehow or else you, you kind of well, I mean, kill but, the you know it, but it's a thing that we've always been doing i mean agatha christie who i was just cut thinking the phone line. Was, yeah cut the phone line the bridge the bridge is washed out we'll have to sit here in the yeah. drawing room talking yeah. about the murder now and you know i mean this is what writers have done I, for over a century at this well, point I, I think it's more to do with that. We've talked. About, I think we talked about it at some point, but the idea, you know, the cinema sins, right? This idea where we have to pit, pick, nitpick. There it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little detail, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we've got YouTube channels devoted to how it should have ended, or plot holes, quote unquote plot holes. You know, I mean, and, in this movie, Ray sets a gun off by stepping on it. Yeah, not yeah. a real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who cares? Well, it I mean, works. It, if it were cocked, I mean, conceivably, if you kick it, you can kick the hammer. There's loose. a there's a million like <laughs> yeah, if this then this. A very I mean, small percentage, I mean, but it can't happen. A cell phone can simply malfunction. Yeah, you can simply just be in a pocket of air yeah. in which there is no. no I drive where I don't have cell phone yeah, reception. Yeah, sure, I don't usually get attacked by murderers or get involved in a bank robbery, yeah. but that happens to me sometimes. Yeah, I I don't I don't I don't know why we're so hyper focused on it's not okay to write to write it that way. I, I I really do think it comes back to that back to that idea. The cinema sins that really I, I don't know what the goal in of that you know I never watched cinema cinema sins. I never did that. I know people nah. who have and I feel like those feel like those people deeper nitpick, especially you know, logic, quote unquote plot holes, you know, things like that that are sometimes you just have to suspend the belief and go with it. And and sometimes when you write a story you have to do things that service the story. Even if it's not plausible or not logical or something that you wouldn't do uh, right yeah. like i feel yeah, like yeah. that's when people get mad at why like did well, they why did characters do that? because I, I, people are shit yeah <laughs> people yeah. do dumb stuff time yeah. like yeah. go with it yeah i, yeah. I don't yeah but don't get me wrong i mean a character can act too dumb yeah. I, I remember uh jurassic world being a movie people talked about like everybody in that movie is dumb and constantly doing dumb things and yeah that's yeah totally fair that can become a weakness of the movie but in something like a blood simple mm-hmm. somebody behaves stupidly or short-sightedly it is usually being used to like escalate stuff that's already in the in the works yeah right I, i'm interested in the in the cell thing I, I it's i'm trying to think of like other other recent things that i, I had one and I, I already lost it but I, I had an example of somebody using it really well like bodies yeah. bodies bodies and i was try, trying to oh it was barbarian but when they're down that. in the basement well, but even even outside of that, the technology not the failure of technology is the failure of like uh, house sharing apps mm-hmm. and the double yeah. booking of apps yeah. mm-hmm. like that that Cross becomes. And, yeah. I, I think you can do you can 
navigate technology in ways that are more interesting than just getting it off board, I guess right. is what I'm saying. But you're right. I mean, going in the basement, losing service is a big part of that story as well. Yeah. I mean, all you got to do, I mean, again, there are other ways to, um, to whatever, malfunction the cell phone besides no signal, right? You could simply like just, yeah, I've, 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 in, in the 20 years I've had cell phones now, I've sat down on one and just, oh crap. And it's broke, right? Yeah. Um, I remember once I, I fell, I fell down twice in the ice shoveling. And I had one of those uh, holsters for a flip phone back in the day, right? Oh of course, he had a flip phone holster. Well, I mean, because you could carry it, on, carry it on your belt. It was scary to carry it in your pocket. It was new and it was expensive. And whatever happened was the thing flipped open. And then I fell a second time. I snapped it and I ooh, yeah. snapped the whole thing off. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this has happened to me in real life. Sure. And I'm, I'm, again, phones are not really the thing anymore. But I'm just saying there are, saying there are other well, ways. All, you know, Wash them. Thinking about that, there's this like check out gun thing about it, right? Like, okay, I've got you know, five minutes in. You're shoveling snow, fall, fall, snap your phone. Mm-hmm. You don't think about it until 20 minutes later when you're getting chased. You're like, oh, no. Right. I mean, th- those type of moments where you can set it up and pay it off later mm-hmm. rather than, you know, your kids are running in the woods. Like, well, call somebody. And like, oh, I don't have service. Like, obvious. No, I think it's can we creatively get there? Right. Is, is, is the key. Which is, I guess, fair. You know, I don't, but I don't. I'm I'm usually the last to pick, to pick out lot issues. Or, I mean, I like, yeah, I I'm, I'm there. I'm yeah. The, the plausible. It has to be that, a pretty bad talks about jump. You know, yeah. even in this movie, they're talking about like continuity stuff. Like, and I hadn't even noticed that they only have like four cars that they're switching, and so they point out like at one point like. One of the cars pulls up and it's one type of car, and then the next shot it's a Buick, and then the next shot it's the other car. Like, like didn't notice. Yeah, I, don't, I, I have no. And, but there's somebody online who's probably pointed out, oh, eighty-five errors and the, the Cohen's blood simple or, or whatever. So, you know yeah, what I, mean? I don't care. There's, yeah, a, there's yeah. a way in which internet culture and memeing and and deconstructing these things has really picked apart. I think mm-hmm. the, yeah, a lot is. of the fun of movies. Well, and it can be easy to do, especially in something yeah. like Blood Simple, yeah. which is a pretty straightforward story that, and again, the, the 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 setting is kind of crucial here. This this movie is with easier phone calls and easier getting a hold of people. The, the, this is a harder story to tell, and and you're right to bring up like the changing technologies. Is I mean, I mean, to go the car sputtering to the lack of cell tower service like, mm-hmm. is sort of a, a through line. As far as like dealing with technology and film, like there's definitely connective tissue there, but it is also like such a different problem to have to deal with. Yeah, <laughs> really for is. sure. Uh, this this movie has to do a lot to get people where it needs them to be, which is that is something that I something that I wonder as far as like we're we're just kind of dealing with thinking about technology and how it impacts storytelling. I wonder how how differently this movie is executed if you tell a similar story set in a you know. A, a now a contemporary to now time frame. I mean, again, this this is at contemporary to eighty four when it's released. Yeah, but uh, you know, how does this sort of simple... I mean, burn after reading? Reading, I think, is kind of yeah. close. Since it's been a while since I've seen it, but, but I think you're good to bring that up. I, I mean, it, it brings in the world world of like intelligence agencies, yeah. but very much like cell phones and yeah. GPS. But, but even technology. narratively, it's also very similar to this because it is just a bunch of dumb people doing dumb stuff and winding up places they shouldn't be yeah infidelity is also yeah. like mm-hmm. a huge sticking yeah. point in that film as well and like a motivator for why people yeah. do what they do but they gotta get brad pitt in somebody's like, closet at one point you know yeah. you know it's you know logically you know narratively i think thinking through character motive well and I, again this is the the strength of this movie is the way in which you come up with a plan and then they just throw in a foil for it so mm-hmm. the plan is that visser is like okay, okay i'm just going to say i killed the couple. I'm going to doctor the photos, make it look like I murdered them, and I'm going to get Give paid, and then I'm going to murder you, and I'm going to frame yeah. them for it. 
perfect. I mean, really, all the way there, except ratio goes up. Thinks his um, girlfriend thinks Abby done it, so he hides the body, hides the body, and also Marty in the in the meantime has has made calls to sort of frame Ray for stealing the money. Yeah, and and so these two little pieces there just work themselves out, and of course, then Invisor accidentally leaves a lighter, which is why he's after you know them in the first place. And the only reason yeah. why Abby ends up shooting him is because she thinks he's Ray coming back from the grave, not Ray, uh, Marty come back from the yeah. grave. And so it's just a sort of – it's not a comedy of errors in that sense. Yeah. It's just misunderstandings and other traps and not knowing what other people are up to. Yeah. And they, they – it's a perfect plan if they hadn't done that. Yeah. It's time to go back to the Pauline and Kale review. Okay. Because you just said something that, like, is – Okay. I haven't read a review, so I didn't think it. you had. This this line ends up perfectly. So here we go. This this is the, the one, like, kind of paragraph-ish long section that I pulled because I thought this was for us. The one real novelty in the conception is that the audience has a god's eye view of who is doing what is doing what. The characters have a blinkered view and misinterpreting what they see sometimes take to- totally inexplicable action. Blood Simple gets almost all of its limited charge from sticking to this device, which gives the movie the pattern of farce. It works best when someone misinterprets who the enemy is, but has the right response anyway. It's a bedroom farce, except that the people sneaking into each other's homes have vicious rather than amorous intentions. Uh, which is just in line, mm-hmm. the God's Eye stuff I thought about earlier when mm-hmm. you were talking about that, yeah. Arthur, because it's definitely a, a recurring trope of theirs. They, they use that theme a lot in their yeah. movies. But Dustin, we, you, you brought that up, that, that uh, comedy of errors type of thing. It made me think of sort of the, the bedroom farce uh, mm-hmm. comment that Kale makes, because that is so much of the juice of this movie is people not knowing what somebody else is doing right. especially i mean the, the whole sequence of ray burying marty is like so mo- much of the dimension there <laughs> right. is ray thinking he's covering up a crap he did right and the, it has so much hangs on that. Well, the only way, reason why visser gets himself killed is because he thinks they have his lighter yeah yeah and they don't he's trying to cover himself <laughs> yeah he's, tr- he's trying to cover himself up for you know one loose end and the loose end's not even loose. Yeah, and, and there's the, there's got to be a scene, you know, where Maurice shows up at the bar, finds the fish and the lighter, and is just very confused. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and then the four tops play. Yeah, yeah, every time, <laughs> every time. Well, I think there's a, like a, a, a it's a really interesting, I think, a writer's approach here, here because I, I wonder how often, you know, with a mystery like this, you know, we've heard people say you kind of get to your resolution and then work backwards to get there. But in the interviews talking about this, they all mention, you know. The cones are very linear, and so they start at the front and then work mm. towards the end. And how can I, we break it? How can yeah, we break it? Is the yeah, question. And I, I think keep that's an interesting approach to to mystery to something like this and getting where we need to go. And I wonder how much more natural things may come out when you're working linearly versus trying to re- reverse engineer to an ending as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes all the difference. I think I, so much of the excitement of their movies is the something going wrong aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the they're, they're sort of Rube Goldbergian build a better mousetrap crime stories that are again like, like these moments of moments of fate, sort of divine intervention almost. But, but it's sort of the Coen Brothers' mother's conception intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and it's always and it's always this this brings up a question here. Uh, a charge, I guess. I guess I should say that I hear levied against them that they don't take their characters very seriously. That they sort of, uh, I, I've definitely heard this. They're they're who's, who's Alexander Payne's another filmmaker. I feel like here come up a lot as a filmmaker mm. that's kind of mean to their characters. But I feel like the Coens are ones that I hear come up a lot. And I just kind of I wanted to think about it, talk about it, uh, again, just kind of keep engaging with uh, because 
what so much of what I just read from Kale like is are things that become hallmarks of their career, as we've already talked about. This sort of God's eye view, where the, the audience is sort of placed in the seat of the divine in some ways, kind of preside over the characters, right? Uh, and, and the films often are sort of doing a similar thing, right? There is, if not an explicit judgment made on the characters, there, there is at least a passive judgment being mm. made by like just what the, by the camera being there as things unfold. So I'm just, I don't know, I'm kind of want to talk about it. Like, do we think they are nice to these characters? Or are, they, are they unfair to their characters? You know, do they have empathy for them? I think they refuse to give them plot armor. Yeah. It, it, it is what it seems to me more than anything is that they refuse to write characters in a way that you are guaranteed protection. Mm-hmm. You are guaranteed to come up with a brilliant idea and the brilliant idea work because I think they have a an existential view of reality and that the only reason why anything ever works is because everything, all these sort of incidental, well, the, the idea of a gun going off would happen to kick it. Mm-hmm. Like a gazillion things have to work out just perfectly in order for that to go off mm-hmm. in just the way it does. It doesn't yeah. hit anybody. I mean, there's, there's so much randomness that has to work together. And if I come up with an idea of like, okay, so this is how I'm going to kill my wife and uh, use this car lot, you know, like mm-hmm. Fargo kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Come up with this idea. It will work if everything works. Mm-hmm. But if any one thing does not work... And, it unravels. Yeah, and then the fact that I'm incapable of exhausting all the possibilities in my head and sort of planning ahead for all of that. They, they, yeah, it totally does work. Unless, again, I think about Visser's plot to, to kill Mark. It totally works. Unless, unless I the body and thinks it's Abby, and I leave my lighter. And, you know... Dot, dot to dot to dot. Yeah. yeah. Well, which is the thing that for me does work about them is right. I, I feel like their plots take place in the real world. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah the too much happens. There's just too, too many variables yeah. for any one person to ever be able to control them all. I and, think a good juxtaposition here is something like Ocean's Eleven, mm-hmm. where we plan out this heist, this puzzle box, and yeah. it goes off perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, in, in a real world, like if one one person sees at the wrong time, or you know, any little modicum of change happens that playing off the rails well the hyper competence is that if there is one thing that happens where the guy can't get out of the suitcase or whatever yeah. they they've, they've got a way that they can play for time and it still works yeah. out and and that that is a difference yeah there, right the, 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 we don't have the hyper competence i think you have normal people. the cohen yeah, normal yeah you people. have normal you don't have yeah, yeah. george clooney, george clooney. Mm-hmm. i again i, I think a strength of theirs uh, to go back to another film of theirs burn after reading clooney there like using his star persona to like kind of undercut that character like is such a strength of burnout after we're and brad Pitt, like, yeah. yeah i mean to, to to have two of the the leading men of their generations as buffoons mm-hmm. like is really good stuff yeah yeah it just kind of it makes it makes the audience and again i think burn after reading is a better example to go to is like how do they feel about these characters because that's one where they really kind of seem to hate everybody uh, for me there, there's like a, an active disdain for how everyone is. And that, that to me is interesting because talking about everything having to go right, they are made movies and that's a hard thing to do. And everything yeah. does have to go right for the movie to come out. And yeah. so there is a certain amount of assumed hyper, hyper competent Coens. So for them to yeah. portray everyone as less than competent does again, bring in the quote of like, mm, man, man, yeah. do people, I don't know. I think they have a bleak look at the world. Mm-hmm. I don't well, know. I, necessarily kind of a, hate I wonder if it's not a humility. What do they think? The only reason why we're here is dumb luck. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I just kind of equate their stuff a bit more ecclesiastical 
Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, and, yeah. and the 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 way approach their topics, meaningless, and, meaningless, everything yeah. is meaningless. The Book of Ecclesiastes, yeah, that's where I come to. I, do. I think it is. They think the world is bleak. It's not really like that. They have a low view of people or their characters. It's just like the world will act against you. And yeah, there's not really anything you can. Yeah, do about and I don't think they're nihilistic in that. You know, it's just yeah, this is life, and you can't control the face. Which again, I think Kale picks up on and doesn't respond to in that review. Right, mm-hmm. she sees that the audience is being primed to be. The, the divine right she sees mm-hmm. sees what they're doing as far as this this the audience is god kind of way that their stories unfold I at think least she in sees, terms of omniscience yeah. Uh, yeah yeah exactly in terms of like letting us see everything everything that's going on us clues that other characters don't have yeah that again omniscience is a good way to put it i think a good example of that attitude is that car sequence where you can't start the car because mm-hmm. a lot of movies would have you in the seat and he's mm-hmm. you know turning it and it's frantic and but we, we just get that god's eye shot and that's life yeah you know and i think that's kind of a powerful image that kind of sums up a lot of their thematic threads i mean it's, it's again it's the moment that works the most for me the, with yeah. the score cut the score totally cutting out as, as the as the is faltering i just mm-hmm. think it's so funny so smart and yeah. it's just like you said takes such a di- different tact than you would expect you would expect that that kind of frantic moment inside the car and to yeah to to let it just sort of breathe and be a moment of quietness is mm-hmm. Just a different call, and and one that I think sets them up as like interesting and important filmmakers. I want to talk about. I want to move from this uh, discussion to a couple of uh, just hard-built character tropes. Um, okay. First of all, the heroic detective. We don't have that. No. And the femme fatale, and we and we don't have that. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which those particular roles are subverted mm-hmm. uh, in this film. Uh, uh, Francis McDormand's character is great. Um, I I really just I just love Abby because she, she's a woman who's sick of this man and has to move on, and she's got an attraction for Ray. For Ray, she's using Ray. She's not like Lana Turner. Yeah. And the husband always rings twice yeah and their relationship's kind of tense in a way as it, as it unfolds mm-hmm. right we have that opening dialogue with him in the car he's you know i like you do you like me kind and of an thing incredible opening credits yeah for mm-hmm. me yeah just like shooting right out the front windshield as it's raining yeah the names are going by and it's just the two of them talking about like is are, are we or aren't we going to act yeah. on this yeah and then we get that jump cut to them in bed mm-hmm. and then a few scenes later you know there's, there's that interaction where uh you know, he they're at his house and they're you know contemplating who gets the bed, mm-hmm. which is you know mm-hmm. are we going from what on? we see already, you kind of I think bring the expectation of they would just share the bed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but mm-hmm. their relationship seems to be in an odd space it's in like, that moment. We may or may not be a couple. We may yeah. have done a thing and sort of acted yeah. on an impulse or a you know long sort of you know uh, attraction held from a distance or whatever, but yeah. we don't know what we what we're about and. It's fine either way. And it, yeah, it yeah. seems like they're fine either way. It's like, if you're not interested in me and I'm not interested in you, know, it's fine. If we're both interested, then maybe, you know. Yeah. It, 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 which is, again, not this sort of spider lady kind of. It's like of, a lot of feeling out of. You know, yeah. yeah that you might get from Alana Turner or Barbara Stanwyck or whatever yeah, in a you're, classic film noir. You're waiting for her to proposition Ray to kill Marty. And yeah. That, that never happens. It, never happens. it yeah. is about Marty proposi- propositioning the detective to kill uh, Abby and, and mm-hmm. Ray. Yeah. yeah. And she almost gets this more of a final girl. In, yeah, in totally. That final moment, that last sequence there in the apartment. Yeah, even there's multiple killers and sort of yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, there's sort of uh, the antagonists multiply yeah uh, throughout that. The next thing is Visser, um, who is this great detective character who does seem to have that kind of spade like competence, except for the one thing and the just the one wrong assumption, and then it all comes off right. Yeah, and uh, and also I Emma Walsh is just so smarmy. 
I, I don't know what other word. He's perfect in this. Man, yeah. so good. Yeah, he, you're so right. He's just sleepy. Yeah, yeah. He just and, and he, he knows it. He does. He knows he's a piece of shit. I love that line. He you can't know, he's like, believe... cut my head off. I'll still wiggle around afterward. You know, you know whatever yeah, he says. Yeah. It's so good. He can't believe Marty is falling for this. Yeah, he is like being so open, open about taking Marty's money. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it, it being like when he's showing him the, the doctored photos, it's just, it's just like, don't worry about it. Yeah, those, I want those pictures back though. Yeah. So, there's a way in which he does kind of come off as the most competent person in the film yeah. until the plan goes awry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the one assumption. You yeah, know, one fumble. The, yeah, no, yeah. I did leave my lighter, which is, I mean, a clue. Yeah. But the the left leaving of the lighter and assuming that they have it is, I mean, and, and again, that gone better. He does have an elevated point of view and a pretty good <laughs> angle on them to shoot them both down in the apartment. Yeah. But because of Ray's suspicion of Abby, not Ray. Yeah. Well, yeah, racist yeah. bitch, Abby. Racist, yeah. yeah. As soon as she killed Marty. Yeah. And and so, yeah, back and forth. Right? I haven't done anything funny, uh, which is just a, a thing that you say, mm-hmm. you know, if you're that character. And then the assumption that it's because it, she's lying. It just it just works. Yeah. He's a PI without a code. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that is the sort of difference between him right, and I mean, Bogart and, has and a code, right? Yeah. Marlo, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is Bogart is like no 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 I I'm you know I stick my man my neck out for no man if we're going to do Casablanca lines but, because the Hayes Code says I have to but this yeah <laughs> yes yeah. yeah no Hayes Code saying anybody has to do anything in Blood Simple thankfully yeah uh, because it is about the economy of murder and like how, how cheap life is a little bit like mm-hmm. I don't know ten k is a lot more money in eighty four dollars than it mm-hmm. is now yeah. yeah. Quite quite a bit more for ten k in eighty four. Yeah, exactly. In, well, in West Texas, you could. Yeah, mm-hmm. but still, it, it is not that much money either. Mm-hmm. So it is. I don't know. The the Coens are always. I mean, this is the you know the the, the Fargo line to to if we're going to keep referencing other film lines of film dialogue. All this for a little money, right? Mm-hmm. Like Francis McDormand is, is sort of the character that can't believe that money will will buy evil in, in Fargo, and that's go, and that's sort. Of, Again, we get that the beginning of that theme here in Blood Simple is like Visser is is willing to do different kinds of evil for money. It's, it's interesting what he he won't do a hit for ten grand, but he will frame somebody for ten grand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, he'll murder someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he'll do the easier murder, murder, yeah. the one that straighter line get away with mm-hmm. which i think is just interesting like you said he's the guy with no code he's just all about the dollar mm-hmm. again the this is sort of small human amounts of money that it all you know it's it's not like uh, a simple plan you know the the cohen's buddy yeah. Raimi. when Raimi does his, yeah. his sort of take on the cohen brother type material and, and does this plan it's it's a real life-changing amount of money that they're dealing with in that film yeah and in this it's i mean you know 10 grand would change my life but but it's you know not for you know what Visser what's Visser gonna do with ten k? He's not gonna retire Cuba, right? You know he's he's, he's gonna have to continue to do something. So it is, I don't know. It's just yeah, you quit your job, yeah, kind of change your life. It's, yeah, it's like no, I, my life would be easier, and you know, it would be nice to have cash. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just it's interesting to me. I, that I, I think in today dollars, it'd be closer, but. Fifty, sixty thousand dollars, probably, which is an, a much more substantial amount of money. For it sure. is, but still, it doesn't make everything better. No, it doesn't make buy it... a house though. Well, oh, down you... payment on it. Down payment on a house. Yeah, you, 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 maybe. You... Yeah, Jesus, no kidding. In this economy, <laughs> yeah, you could you could put it towards your mortgage and then like, I guess refinance your 
Yeah. You know, and make your payments less. But yeah, it wouldn't really make every it'd make it easier, but not mm-hmm. the life didn't go away or whatever. Do some student loans. I wouldn't kill either of you for ten grand, and that's the scout. That is, Noted. You know, scout's Noted. honor. That's good. Um, not for ten grand, no. Uh, <laughs> Twenty grand. <laughs> Let's move on. Thirty grand. <laughs> Forty grand. <laughs> the part of the show we render a verdict. Oh, he doesn't want to talk about the economy of murder. Okay, yeah. interesting. In this economy. <laughs> <laughs> what do we say with blood silver? Self, shelf, self, shelf, self, self shelving or trashing? What do you say? Mm, this is a very difficult one. I gotta say. Because I feel like there are better Cohen, better Cohen brothers. I don't know that like. Unless you're Cohen's completionist, I don't know that you have to get to this this one because it is just a really competent noir riff. It looks cool. The camera moves are slick. I, I, there are choices again. The, the opening credits I think are among the best opening credits in, a, in an independent film I've ever seen. I think the the the, the car, car and start cutting out at the same beat hilarious. Mm-hmm. I, I think Emmett Walsh's like the, the final POV shot of him under the sink. Really incredible stuff, but I also do think it is just a, a solid noir riff. Yeah. So uh, it's a four star movie for me. That doesn't mean I think it's bad, but I I also don't think it's essential. So it is a very gentle trashing. Uh, it's readily available on multiple streaming services. So I, I don't think you have to own this one. Uh, there are other Cohen movies that are much more imp- important to have on the shelf. I, th- I think. Said, if, if this is your favorite Cohen Brothers movie, get it. It's all there. Uh, and they're working with a lot less resources, so it's it's a really impressive and, and astonishing first film. Honestly, mm-hmm. I, I I don't see what Kale didn't like, but I also haven't seen a lot less movies than her. So there, there you go. All right, thank you very much for that, Dalton. Arthur, what do you say? Shelver trash for blood? Simple. I think for me, it does go on the shelf. It, it, it does check those boxes for me, and I think historically, it's a very fascinating kind of artifact. You know, not only as the Coens, but talking Sonnenfeld, talk, talking Burr, uh, Carter Burr. Burwell, uh, and just the kind of seed it plants for all those careers, and and Francis McDormand as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that I think is just really in my wheelhouse and checks those boxes for me. So yeah, I, I would put it on the shelf. All right, very good, very good. I would also put it on the shelf because of my love of all things noir. And uh, I mean, I guess I'm not so much Coen Brothers completionist as much as I am a noir semi-completionist and there you uh, go. and this is definitely one of those and so for me it's, it's a shelfer as well so the audio listener those it, are our thoughts we didn't talk about this. is it essential neo-noir is it an essential neo-noir um yeah okay all right you heard it here first first there's the <laughs> thought yeah probably not but. probably not probably not a set but it's it, no you probably didn't hear it first I... uh what a <laughs> What would I on that on that question? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of great. Movies. I think it's it, it's in the pool of the fifteen or twenty movies that you pick two or three or three from, and and so you could have picked it. You could have picked Collateral. You could have picked Manhunter. You could have picked you know a Thief. You could have picked you know. There's a couple. You could have got real neo neo noir and gone Strange Days even. Yeah, yeah. Why not? You wanted to. I mean, you could have picked a handful full of movies, yeah. but it would have been as good a selection as others. So just depends on what your um. What's your uh, fancy was at the moment? Immediately went from essential to near essential. Feet to the fire, he flops. Yeah, that's it. But it's still shelfable. So. It's still shelfable for sure. Yeah, you're all shelfable for both of you. Yeah, hard yeah. shelf. Yeah, excellent. So, all right. Well, let's talk about how they can talk to us on uh, they being you, the dear listener. That's how- right. 
Tell us, Dalton. I will tell you right now. Who's right? Who's wrong? Should it be on the shelf? Should it not be, not be on the shelf? Let us know. Good trash genre cast at gmail.com. That's where you can send all that long form feedback. Good trash genre cast at gmail.com. You can also find us over on Twitter at good trash media. You can find written work from Arthur and I, Dustin in the, the catalog or the archive rather at goodtrashmedia.com. If you want to see, you know, written content, that's where you can find at goodtrashmedia.com. And on Twitter at goodtrashmedia is where you can find this show, other shows in our orbit, uh, articles that we found interesting and wanted to share. Uh, pod podcasts that we collaborate with and, and like and want to share and help help uh, keep exposure going or just you know if somebody that i think is a tastemaker says something interesting about what was good this year i might just retweet it because i think they make some good points that's the kind of stuff you can find over at good trash media last but certainly not least if you want to help us keep lights on it's patreon.com forward slash gtm that's where you can uh, throw some some dollars in our bucket help us uh, pay web host fees and you can find out what's it for you things like picking, picking a movie for us to discuss on the show uh, having a movie sent to you based on a survey you fill out we'll, we'll figure out your tastes and uh, calibrate the arthurtron 5000 to spit out just the right recommendation so that's patreon.com forward slash gtm if you want to help contribute to the show uh but you certainly certainly don't need to do arthur do we have another do we have another up? yeah we do uh next week as we've wrapped up our anti-trash crime marathon uh this week uh in something of a tradition uh, since you're gonna spill coffee uh we're gonna keep the crime wave going oh another tradition we'll keep the crime wave going Excellent. yeah good not uh, just us and spilling coffee yes uh <laughs> are we gonna a do a full Good trash crime marathon. Yes, or? yeah, baby. There's a little twist. Okay, okay. I don't know how to name it. Okay, because we're going to be taking a look at American movies mm-hmm. led by stars from Asia, and we start next week with Chow Yun Fat and Anton Fuqua's Replacement Killers. Fun. Fun. Okay, yeah, Fun. Asian American crime thrillers, something like that. We'll, we'll figure it but, out. But trashy. Yeah. Which is totally the case. Yeah, hell yeah. It replacement killers. I'm so excited. Ooh. That is outstanding. Well, you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time.